So the series we started last week, the summer series, is called Devoted, and the idea is we want to work through uh, the early life of David, kind of the time from when he steps into the Bible story and up to the point where he becomes king. And we're going to look at that uh, from a couple of different angles. So over the next eight weeks or nine weeks, I don't know however many are left, uh, you're going to hear from a number of guys from uh, Bill Russell, uh, Dean Salami, and John Malella, and myself, and Ed Partly this gives Ed a break, so with all the stuff going on with the building, he's able to focus on some of that and not have, you know, like so much on his plate during the week, and part of it was to give him a chance to get out of town. So pray for them over the next couple of weeks as they're on vacation. Ed and Diane are in uh, South Carolina, and they even said, you don't need to send us pictures of what's going on with the building. We, we kind of want to be, you know, like we'll, we'll just be surprised when we come back. So that's uh, very cool. So David... It's kind of like the George Washington for Israel. I mean, if you look at Israel's history, the peak of the monarchy, the height of their well-being and their national prosperity occurred around the time of King David's reign. So you're thinking about a thousand years before Christ steps on the scene. And so for us to dig into David's life is, is a great place for us to look because David wrote a lot of the Psalms, much of the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, even the New Testament sort of references back to David. And there's some ways that David's kingship points us forward to Christ. So I want to go through the story with you this morning from 1 Samuel 16. I'd love it if you guys could read along with us, if you have your Bible with you. I'm just going to hit some passages and I'm going to paraphrase some others And it would be awesome if in your personal time in God's Word, maybe you could read along with us. So we're just covering a chapter or two a week, but we're in 1 Samuel 16 right now. So it starts in verse 1 with the Lord saying to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? If you were here last week, you remember Ed talked about Saul who had been told to go wipe out the Amalekites and he kind of did it. He did it some, but he, he saved the king kind of as like a trophy, and he didn't destroy all the livestock. And God was very displeased because Saul did what he thought was right. He started with God's command, but then he kind of like, well, I'll just do it my way rather than kind of doing what God said. So he, he got about 75% of the way there, but he chose to do it his way. And so Samuel, who is God's man, he's the prophet here who anointed Saul, who was like the prophet for Israel in this time. He is mourning because Saul, this king that he had seen with so much hope and so much promise, so much potential, here he has turned out to be such a disappointment. And so God says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, guy from Bethlehem, in other words, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So when Saul disobeyed God, Samuel, who was the prophet, went to him and and basically told him that he was being disobedient to God. And he chastised the king, which is a pretty dangerous thing in those times because the king had absolute power. And because the king, Saul, had not destroyed King Agag, who was the leader of the Amalekites, because Saul hadn't done it, Samuel said, okay, bring him here. And this holy man of God kills the king of the Amalekites in front of the king of the Israelites, kind of like to say, you didn't get the job done, I will do it for you. I don't know what that says about following your pastor, but I'm just saying, when Ed comes back, I think you guys just, you know, if he says something, you ought to to listen. So 
Saul is understandably a little worried about this because he worries that maybe he's upset the king. And people around him have heard that there is some dissonance between the prophet of God and the king of Israel. Samuel's worried about Saul, so the Lord says, well, okay, here's a plan. I want you to go down to Bethlehem, take a cow with you. And if anybody asks, you can just tell them that you're going to do a sacrifice. And then when you get there, call everyone together, and you can celebrate this fellowship offering, slaughter the cow, and then you can anoint the person that I have chosen to lead Israel. And verse 4 is a great passage, just six words here. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And he went to Bethlehem, and the elders were kind of worried when he got there because they were afraid they might get sucked into this drama between Samuel, the prophet, and Saul, the king. And they did not want the king coming in and slaughtering them. They didn't want Samuel to do to them what he had done to Agag. So they just wondered if he was coming in peace. And he said, yeah, I'm coming to sacrifice. I want you to to consecrate yourself. So get ready for this. There's a ceremonial washing, put on clean clothes, and that kind of symbolizes that you're preparing your heart on the inside to make a sacrifice to God. And then come and we'll sacrifice. And then Jesse and his sons, that was who God had sent him to, to go anoint a new leader from, he invited Jesse and his sons to come, and he consecrated them. So the, the prophet, he was kind of like the Billy Graham of his day, the Mother Teresa of his day, just you know, like the most prominent spiritual leader in the land. Clearly, God's spokesman consecrates Jesse and his son. And then we pick up again in verse 6. And when they came, when Jesse and his son show up, Samuel looked on Eliab, who was the oldest of Jesse's son. And he thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the anointed one would be the the chosen one. And in uh, spiritual life back in these days in Israel, uh, they would take some oil, some some churches still do this today, and they would kind of dab it on the head or they might anoint the head with oil. And it was kind of a symbol that God has put a special blessing on this person. God has chosen this person for something special. And so when Samuel sees Eliab, who's the oldest, he thinks, wow, this is the one that God has chosen and he's standing before God right now. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, Samuel, you're a godly man, but you look at the outside. You see the the physical appearance. You see what changes over time. You see what's really ultimately not that important. But I am God, and I look at the heart. I look at the deepest part, the most hidden part. I know the motives and the thoughts. I know what no one else sees, and that's what I look at. I see things not in the same way that you see them. So because Eliab wasn't the one, uh, Samuel has Jesse bring his other sons, and one by one, probably from oldest to youngest, they come before him, and they get introduced to Samuel. And with each one, Samuel's thinking, maybe this is the one. Maybe he's the one. And God says, nope. Nope, he's not the one. And they run through all of the sons of Jesse that are at this fellowship meal, and not a one of them has prompted God to say to Samuel, choose him. And Samuel's confused. So he asks Jesse, well, are we missing anybody here? And Jesse said, well, yeah, but only my youngest son. He's out in the field with the sheep. I didn't even bother inviting him. He's just a kid. And Samuel says, no, no, we're going to wait. We're not going to do this meal until he gets here. So they send for the youngest son, whose name is David, and he shows up. Now, he, David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the Spirit of the Lord not just rested on David. This is the English Standard Version. There's this sense of like movement and power. Like, you know, he's just coursing through David's life. From that point forward, the Spirit of God rushed upon David. And the Spirit comes on David and rests. And at the very same time, the Spirit of God leaves King Saul, who has been God's anointed one. But because King Saul, last week uh, in Ed's sermon, because Saul rejected God and he rebelled against him and he handled things his way rather than doing what God said, God withdrew his spirit from Saul and he withdrew his blessing. And in verse 1, it, God says very clearly, I've, just, I've rejected Saul. He rejected me, so I'm rejecting him. This is an interesting thing because one of the themes that runs through 1 Samuel is the sovereignty of God. The overarching idea that God is ultimately in control of everything, but that doesn't relieve any of us from our personal responsibility. He also gives us choice, and God honors our choice. And in Saul's case, Saul chose to do things his way. He knew clearly what God wanted him to do, and he said, you know what, I'm gonna, I think i got a better way. I'm going to do it this way. I want to make my men happy. I kind of like the idea of marching this enemy king that I captured. I'm going to march him around like a monkey. I'm going to embarrass him. It's going to make me look awesome. So I'm just going to do it my way. And because he rebelled and because when presented with an opportunity for repentance, when Samuel comes to him, he chose not to. And so because he rejected God, God rejected him. And that's the same choice that each of us have. So God calls us to make a choice about his son, Jesus Christ, and God honors that choice. So if we choose to reject Christ in this life, God honors that choice. And we can live our life however we want to live it. But God honors that choice also, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And we are destined to spend eternity apart from Christ. So not only do we not get Jesus at work, you know, from the inside out changing us and directing us and shaping us and pouring hope into us, we have to spend eternity without him. On the other hand, if we choose to bow our knee to Christ now, if we choose to invite him and be the leader and forgiver in our life, if we choose to walk behind him and try to follow in his footsteps, then God honors that choice, not just in this life, not just with a a richness of life and direction and peace that passes all understanding. He honors it in the next life, in eternity, and we get to spend forever in heaven with him. So God has always been in control, but he's also always allowed choice. And he honors our choice. And some of you right now, you know, maybe are choosing or have never gotten to the point where you chose to invite Christ into your life and to follow him. And I hope you understand that is absolutely your choice. But as Saul found out, our choices bring consequences. And so for Saul, the spirit of God was withdrawn. And interesting, several translations say an evil spirit from the Lord. Probably a more accurate translation is a harmful spirit, a a malevolent spirit. So it's not a demonic spirit that God sends, but it's a troubling spirit that God sends. So uh, Saul has rebelled against God. He's rejected God. God withdraws his spirit from him and then sends a different kind of troubling spirit. And the way it shows up as you read 1 Samuel, it, it almost sounds like maybe, you know, bipolar disorder or something like that, because Saul can be well under control and acting royal one moment and then kind of going nuts the next. And everyone around him knew it. So this spirit would come and torment him, and Saul's servants, who had to take care of him, and when he got upset, they were the ones that received the wrath. They said, look, you've got this 
harmful spirit that is tormenting you, why don't you get someone who can come in and soothe your troubled heart? Like maybe if we got somebody that came in and played music and it would kind of calm you down and maybe you wouldn't be so angry all the time. And the king thought about it and he decided, yeah, that sounds good. And one of the servants knew of a person who kind of fit the bill. And so in verse 18, it says, one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, hey, send me your son. I want him to enter into my service. And so David came to Saul in verse 21 and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he, David, became his armor bearer. So he's one of Saul's most trusted allies in the inner court. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. And after that, anytime this harmful spirit came upon Saul and he became tormented and angry, David would come in and play and King Saul would be relieved and refreshed and kind of calmed down. And everybody was happy about David doing that because when the king is angry, everybody knows it. So uh, this is the backdrop. This is the story that we're looking at this morning. And a question that we wrestled with over the last couple of months, this this group of men that's preaching through this series, as we kind of worked through these passages and we talked about it, a, a question that came up more than once was, who is the protagonist in this story? Who's the leading character, the most prominent figure, the, the key advocate? Uh, literally, it's the player of the first part. You know, so who has the dominant role here? And so that was a question that we discussed and talked about and tried to figure out with every passage. It's an interesting question that may guide our thinking on this passage this morning. So the first character, and he's a major character, is King Saul. So if it's King Saul, let's think about that. Because in verse 1, clearly, Saul has rejected God, and God in turn has rejected Saul. And Saul's decision has brought the consequences, and that's the same thing with us. And so uh, just like with us, Our decisions bring consequences. Saul's brought consequences. And from this point on in the story, in 1 Samuel, you know, Saul had reached his peak within the last couple of chapters, but now he is kind of on this downward slope. And he will continue for several more chapters, but he is fading in terms of his influence, his power, and his effectiveness as a leader for Israel. So Saul has to be rejected. He's not the protagonist. At best, he is, you know, like in a supporting role, an important character but a supporting role. Another possibility would be Samuel, because, I mean, let's face it, the book is written under the name Samuel. I mean, it's called Samuel, 1 Samuel. This is just the the first half of kind of the story of Samuel that covers the history in Israel during the time when Samuel was the prophet. So it has his name on it. Maybe it's about Samuel. And in the last chapter, Samuel played a very prominent role. He was like the hero. He was the guy that got in the king's face and said, "Mm, you did not do what God told you to do. He put his life at risk. He's the hero of the story, speaking up for God to the most powerful man in his country. And this chapter begins with Saul. He's in mourning. He's disappointed. He's heartbroken over the fact that this great nation that belongs to God had a king, and they were headed in the right direction And it seemed like there was so much promise. And yet, because of this man's failure, this man's brokenness, maybe all of Israel was going to experience the same kind of disappointment and fall far short of what God had destined them for. But Samuel has learned about obeying in spite of feelings. 
So he's mourning, and he's, you know, devastated emotionally. And he's also fearful of Saul, that if he goes to anoint another leader, even if God's picked him, maybe Saul's going to be mad at him, and Saul's going to kill him. So he's got mourning and fear, and all of those are legitimate feelings. I mean, he's absolutely justified to feel that way. But God has a plan, and he protects Samuel. And he doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't be afraid. He just says, okay, you need to get your stuff together and get rolling because I have a job for you. And your job is doing what I say. So I want you to get your horn and you fill it with oil, put the the lid on it, and I want you to go to Bethlehem and anoint a new king. So Samuel doesn't use his feelings as an excuse for inaction or disobedience or delay. He obeyed God in spite of his feelings, in spite of his fear. Clearly, there's a lesson for us because our feelings can drive what we do. If we're discouraged and God prompts us to do something, it's easy enough to just go like, ah, I don't know, I, I don't think I'm up for that. I, I don't know that I could do that. We're fearful, or we're overwhelmed with grief or stress, and, and we may choose to, to pull back on our relationship with God because we let our feelings influence our actions. I think another times we can sort of extrapolate from our feelings and project it onto God. So a couple of months ago, my wife's truck, we took it in for inspection, and the truck is worth about $2,500, and the inspection people said, we can get it to pass inspection and have it running, and it'll only cost you about $3,500. And so we were going like, wait, wait, 30, yeah, I don't think that's going to work for us. And really, it felt like, ah, why, God, why, you know, well, God didn't pick an old truck for us. I mean, we, we inherited it from Jill's dad. It had 200,000 miles on it. We've driven the wheels off of it. It just happens when you have old cars sometimes, you know, they fall apart and they have expensive repair bills and all of that. So I might have felt like God was not taking good care of us. But but my feelings don't really dictate what God is up to. I may not be aware of what God is up to because of my feelings. Uh, There are times when I may be mad at someone and I'm then thinking, well, God is surely, you know, mad at them also because of the way they've treated me and the injustice of all things. And and maybe that's not at all how God feels. Maybe I'm just being very selfish and thinking about it from my perspective, and I've completely missed what things look like from the other person's perspective. So the goal is to not get rid of all feelings. It's just to realize that our feelings sometimes can cloud our judgment, and they can keep us from obeying God. And when the feelings overwhelm, we have to trust and obey Him. We have to really lean into Him. Uh, this week at camp, the group that I was with uh, we went to, uh, originally, we went to a, a place called The Lighthouse. And it was kind of a social ministry in Lynchburg that helped people that were coming off the street. Some people had addiction problems. Uh, some people were homeless. They needed training and help with getting job interviews. Other people needed clothing or meals. And we went in, and uh, the kids in my group, uh, there were probably 20 kids from 10 different churches. They were kind of disappointed and bummed because when we got there, Uh, There was already another group from the camp that was there working, and it was obvious that it just wasn't going to be enough for us to get done. It it was kind of like, well, you guys could um, maybe like straighten up that room and rearrange the furniture, and it it didn't feel very satisfying. And our group leader, who's a 20-year-old guy from down in Fredericksburg, said, look, guys, you know, God's got a plan. Don't worry about it. We'll figure out something. And so a little later on, we packed up, jumped in the van, and we went to another place, a different ministry site. And we showed up at a low-income housing project in kind of a a rougher area of town, and there was nobody out 
in, in the yard except for a couple of older people kind of sitting in a chair, you know, on the front stoop, just kind of seeing what's going on in the neighborhood. And the kids got off the van. It was like, awesome, what are we doing here? There's nothing going on. And so uh, the leader says, well, let's knock on doors. And, and then like, a couple of you guys start throwing a ball around, and we're just going to see if we can attract some attention from the kids in the neighborhood. And after a while, you know, let's, maybe they'll come out, we'll play with them, we'll get a chance to talk to them, maybe pray with them, maybe tell some Bible stories. We'll see what happens this week. And the kids are like, I don't want to knock on doors. I'm probably not going to know the person that answers. And, you know, they were very hesitant. But they slowly, begrudgingly kind of went door to door, started knocking, and, and then shuffled them next door. And within about an hour, we had 25 kids outside. And, and it became really obvious that, you know, when clear outsiders come into the neighborhood, maybe everybody's like, bring the women and children inside. They're weird people outside. But they came in, and we got in the, the development, and within a few short minutes, people were outside, and we, we had connections with kids. I ended up getting to pray with two of the moms that were there, and one of them was a pastor's daughter who had three kids that were out there playing and one on the way. And so we had a good conversation over a couple of days, just trying to get to know each other. And then another mom that I got to pray with, she was a recent widow. She was probably, I'm guessing, in her 20s, had two kids, and her husband had died two months ago. And I don't know the story, but, you know, we actually had a chance, I think, to do some real ministry, not just playing games, which was, that was actually really good for the kids because they couldn't afford to go to camp like maybe our kids do. They just kind of hung out in the neighborhood during the week. So our kids in the group learned a powerful lesson that, you know, don't let your feelings determine what you do. We're going to move ahead in faith, and we're going to trust God, and we're going to do what we need to do. Well, Samuel also models obeying in spite of perspective. His perspective was based on what was observable. It's the same thing that we do. We look at the outside. We look at what's familiar. And so when he sees Jesse's firstborn son, it's like, well, clearly this is the guy. He's big. He's muscular. He's the oldest, obviously, has responsibility. This must be the guy. And he jumps to that conclusion when in reality, God needs to sort of broaden his perspective and correct his understanding of things. And we could spend the whole sermon talking about this one verse, verse 7 in chapter 16 where the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we live 3,000 years later and 6,000 miles away, but we do the exact same thing. We may not be looking at the person's outward appearance, but we look at the outward appearance of their house or their car or their clothing or their GPA or their team's record, and we think, wow, now, gosh, they're the fortunate ones. We're impressed with people who are popular at school or in the marketplace. Good-looking people get hired sooner than better qualified, average-looking people. At school, the popular or good-looking kids get asked to the dance first. And those of us who should know better, we do the same thing. I've shared this with the teenagers. When I was in college, my roommate was a guy named Carrie Shook, And Kerry was a a nice enough guy, actually really nice, and he dated this girl who was great, and Kerry wanted to be a youth pastor. His dad was a pastor of a large church in Houston, and Kerry's a nice guy, but just my opinion of Kerry was like, you know, I'm sure he'll be, you know, like a swell guy in youth ministry, but I don't know how far he's going to go. I mean, you know, it's kind of limited material. And I found out a couple of years ago, Kerry pastors a church of like 18,000 people in Houston. He's on billboards everywhere. He's got a TV show. He's written best-selling books, and Rick Warren writes the foreword. And it's like, 
oh my gosh, you know, like, God, okay, that's funny, I get it, but, you know, (laughs) I guess I should not look at the out, you know, maybe there's something in him that I didn't see, because God has used him in a powerful way. And so we need to make sure that we don't place the kind of value on the externals that the world does. And I worry, parents, that we do that with our kids because we idolize their GPA. We worry an awful lot about, you know, them building their academic resume so they get into a great college, but we don't put the same effort and energy getting them to Bible study or talking to them at home about spiritual things because, yeah, that's kind of awkward. And, and really, you know, when you're bragging to your neighbors, you want to be able to say, oh, yeah, my kid's taking seven AP courses this year. We need to be careful about that. I'm a parent too, so I, I experience this. I, I just, I worry that we are looking at things that don't hold eternal value. We do the same thing with our homes, with our cars. We see somebody in traffic in an old car, and we think, oh, my gosh, they probably don't have insurance. I better stay away from them. It could be they just aren't all caught up in the flash, and they don't feel like they need a new car because it's just a depreciating asset, and they're just driving a beater to and from work because they'd rather give more money away. Oh, well, that's different then. Um, we need to be careful that we obey God and we align our perspective with his. A third thing that Samuel does, he's obeying in spite of not knowing the whole plan. When God tells him to go, all he says is, I want you to go to Bethlehem and you're going to pick one of Jesse's sons. And he gets up and he goes. He doesn't, he doesn't know all the details. This is very reminiscent of when God told Abraham to go. He just says, pick up your stuff, pick up your family and get going. And I'll tell you along the way, where I want you to go. And at every stop, God would give Abraham kind of the next step in the journey. And this is what he does with Samuel. And I think uh, for those of us who are planners, we like spreadsheets and budgets and all of that stuff. It's very tempting to want to know, how does this story end? What's the destination? What am I aiming for? Where am I supposed to be going? And God often chooses not to give us the whole plan. I don't know why that is. Maybe he knows that we would not like the destination. Maybe he knows that he has a better opportunity to teach us if we're dependent upon him with every step of the journey. But God calls us to obey him even when we don't know the whole plan. So there's a lot we can learn from Samuel, and Samuel certainly is a main character in this, but I don't think he's the protagonist. So another option would be David. He's the the heart of this series. He's the one that we're looking at over the whole course of the summer. And this is kind of when David comes on the scene. We're getting a glimpse of David before David and Goliath's story happens. So this is early life of David. So on one level, this chapter has to be about David. He represents the high point in Israel's monarchy. And in many of your Bibles, the subtext for this chapter, the, the subtitle is David is anointed, because that's what this chapter is about. And even before he encounters Goliath and becomes a household name in Israel, we delve into the story of David. So maybe it's about him. And I want you to think about the preparation that God has been doing in David's life at this point. So we're very early in his life, but God has been preparing him. He's still a teenager here, the youngest one in his family. So he's the one out tending the sheep while his other brothers go to the feast with his father, They go into town, they meet with the elders, they're kind of like, you know, part of society. Younger brother doesn't even make the lineup. But even in this brief snapshot of David's life, we see how God has been teaching him. 
Uh, he's been learning humility because he's out with stinky sheep while his brothers are in town at the big fellowship meal with all the important people. His own dad doesn't even think about inviting him to the feast with God's prophet because he's just a kid. He's taking care of the sheep. And later, when David goes up against Goliath, he'll explain how he's learned to defend the sheep against predators by using his sling and rocks and a staff. So God has been preparing him while he's shepherding. He's become a skillful shepherd knowing how to scout out first fertile pastures for his flock. He calls to his sheep. He cares for them. He carries them when necessary. He knows them by name. They know his voice. He is learning an awful lot about leadership and especially spiritual leadership. And when you read the 23rd Psalm, which probably was written much later in David's life, this idea of being a shepherd, he understands that primarily, even though he's the king, God has called him to be a shepherd over the people of God. And in that way, David points us ahead a thousand years to the good shepherd, the one shepherd who tends to our souls and who looks after us lovingly in a way that no one else can. In the second half of the chapter, when the servants of King Saul are suggesting the name of somebody that he should consider to come in and play music, one of the servants knows about David and recommends him. Now listen to the the attributes of David that he mentions. Again, this is before David has been on the scene. This is before Goliath has been slain, and yet this is the reputation David has. First of all, he's skillful with the lyre, which is an instrument kind of like a harp that's portable. He's musical, and he's artistic. We know from the the psalms that he writes, he was a man of great feeling, great passion. He he writes song lyrics. The psalms, many of them are, are songs that David wrote. But in spite of being an artistic person and a creative person, he's also a brave and courageous man. He's not foolish, but he doesn't let fear paralyze him. He's bold and courageous. And beyond that, he's a warrior. He's already known as a tough guy who knows how to get the job done. He's somebody that understands how to size up an opponent to look for weakness. It's not just that he jumps in and and starts swinging. He can kind of analyze the situation and assess the risks and the rewards, and come up with a plan of battle that would work. And this is just because he's a shepherd. But he's already known as somebody who gets the job done physically and who can provide for his flock. So he's creative, but he's also kind of a man of action. We're a bunch of middle-aged guys talking in this room as we're planning this series, but over and over again, we're like, wow, he is a dude. I mean, David was like the guy who got things done. You did not want to mess with him because he was a warrior. We also know that he speaks well. That means he knew what to say and he knew how to package what he needed to say. And by implication, he also knew what not to say. And he was able to to be compelling with his speech. And we see that in the Psalms that he writes. I mean, he was a really gifted communicator. And so this is one of the things that's known about him. And then one other quality about him is he's not bad looking. You know, he's, he's very pleasing to the eyes, which if you're going to be in the king's court, that's a pretty big deal. So the servant recommends David, and all of these qualities are already baked into his life by the time he's the age of some of our high school students here. And that's known about him. His reputation precedes him. God has been preparing him to be the king, using what seems like a very modest position, which would be overlooked by most people in his culture. That's the thing, where, like God can be building our character when we stay at home and take care of our kids. That's not, maybe there's more value to being a stay-at-home mom in our culture now than there might have been a few years ago, but 
A lot of people, if you're in that position, I think you have felt like other people look down at you because, like, wow, don't you have any ambition? Yeah, I want to see my kids grow up and, and to healthy little people. But that's not valued in our culture. We sometimes, you know, kids, you could be babysitting uh, one of your siblings or cleaning the yard, and you don't think of that as something that God might be using to equip you. You may be stuck in a job that you really do not like, but maybe God is using that, unbeknownst to you, to prepare you for something else. So God is preparing David through all of this. And when we are stuck where we don't want to be, we should look at David's example of kind of blooming where you're planted, you know, like rather than worrying about where you're not, as long as you're in the position that you're in, why don't you invest wholeheartedly and do the very best job that you can, whether we're talking about your relational situation, your work situation, your finances, your house. It's easy to be unsatisfied with where you are. But it's interesting that God can use even those kind of situations when we're willing to commit ourselves to doing things God's way. But God has also been positioning David in this chapter. He's moving David from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel. And he's getting him there by way of serving in the king's court. So God, who is sovereign, uses circumstances in King Saul's life. He sends this tormenting, malicious spirit to really mess with Saul because Saul has said, eh, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. And it's almost as if God is saying like, Really? You think so? And so God sends this spirit, and it creates an an opening in the king's court where somebody needs to come in and and try to soothe this guy, get him to calm down. And then David is the man. When he enters the king's service, he does well. Whenever he plays, Saul feels better, and the tormenting spirit leaves him. The king likes him. He's a very appealing guy. He does his work well. And he becomes one of Saul's armor bearers, one of the most trusted of servants in the royal household. Now think about this, what better place for David to learn about his eventual responsibility as the king of Israel than to be in the court of the current king? It'd be like a kid who wants to be president one day and the president of the United States says, hey, why don't you come in and you can make copies in my office and sharpen the pencils and, you know, just kind of hang out in the Oval Office with me. How cool is that? I mean, think about the experience and all that you could learn. And David here, in the close proximity with King Saul, would have a firsthand look at what goes on around the king, good and bad. And in Saul's case, it was mostly bad. And I think David had a really good example of how not to be the king. So I want you to think about this for a minute. If God is preparing you right now at this season in your life, if he's positioning you for something, what might it be? I mean, we're not just talking about bad circumstances or hard circumstances. It could be in really good times. God is blessing you at work, and you just got a promotion, and it's exciting, and you got a pay raise, or, wow, you just added to your family. That's awesome. wonder what God might be up to. And I hope that maybe you'd spend some time this week thinking about that question. If God is preparing me or positioning me for something else, I wonder what it is. What does he have in mind for us? I think it's often easy for us to just get caught up in what we're doing and just try to get through with it, and we don't ever think about God's purposes in it. But in this case, God, in a very real way, was putting David in the place that he needed to be for his future kingship. When I was 13, my dad pulled me aside on one Wednesday night on the way to church and said, hey, we're going to be moving from Richmond, Virginia, to Texas soon. 
And I was like, what? You know, this is the only house I've ever lived in. We've been here forever. Why would we go to Texas? Well, my, my job moved me to Texas, and we have to be there. I think that was October. We had to be there by January 1. He was a, a chemist for Texaco, and so he was relocated to the Gulf Coast of Texas where all the refineries are. And I thought it was going to be the end of the world as I knew it. I did not want to go to Texas. I did not know anything about horses. I was really confused about the whole tumbleweed thing, you know, and it just it felt really odd and strange. And, and when I got there, fortunately, not everybody rode horses. And in Beaumont, Texas, anyway, there were never any tumbleweeds. So... It wasn't as bad as I thought. And in retrospect now, I can see how God kind of did this 17-year detour in my life, but he put me three blocks away from the woman that I eventually married. And he put me in a seminary in Texas with a bunch of my old buddies from the church I grew up with in Richmond. So we ended up being able to start a church that has been, it was kind of a forerunner of Gateway because it was planted by the same mother church about uh, five years before. And, and God orchestrated all of that, unbeknownst to me, I think, to put me where he wanted me. It didn't feel like it at the time. It, it probably seldom does. But in retrospect, probably you can see how God has at times put you in situations that you might not have been crazy about, but he was positioning you and he was preparing you for something else. There's one other protagonist that we ought to consider, and I'll wrap up with this one. And I would argue that ultimately, not just in this chapter, but in David's life, the, the story is not really about Samuel or Saul or David. The protagonist in 1 Samuel is God himself. This is ultimately the story of God. He's the main character. And the reason that David is known as a man after God's own heart in the New Testament is because David understood this, this is not about me. This is about God. Uh, I may be the king of Israel, but it's not about me. It's not my story. It's God's story. And in David's times of failure, it's when he lost sight of that fact that the story was really about God, not about him. But to David's credit, he repents when he gets off track. At the heart of things, this chapter is about God working out his plans, writing into his story the people who will follow after him and who will recognize his authority and who will try to line themselves up with the direction that he has set for them. And equally, God has written out of the story like he's doing with Saul, those who reject him or who rebel against him. And I have to say, we face the same situation today. God invites us into his story. He invites us into his plans, and he says, look, if you want, I will write you into my story, and I am going to give you an important part. You can join the work of changing people's lives forever. You can be a part of advancing my kingdom into this world of changing things, of being pivotal in the lives of the people around you, of being a blessing, of counting for all eternity. You can do that if you want to be in my story, and all you have to do is to line your life up with me. Make me the leader of your life. Trust me to forgive you and follow after me. But if you want, you can choose not to be in the story. And you can live your own life. You can live your story. Saul tried it and it didn't work out too well for him. And some of you have experienced that, where you've been living your own life and, and it sucks because there are limitations that we all have. None of us is able to get everything right. We screw things up. We make mistakes. We hurt people. And after a while, the baggage that we carry with us is just overwhelming. 
We're not strong enough to carry it or to unpack it or to fix it ourselves. And so when we turn to Christ and say, I want to be written into the story, we get that invitation from God to join into his plan. This is true of individuals. So some of you, I know, are in situations that are pretty overwhelming right now. And it feels like you're in the middle of, you know, maybe a health crisis or tremendous financial pressure or at work. Just, man, it's, it's not a good situation. And you are dying under the load. It could be relational challenges that are overwhelming you or some other kind of burden that just is like crushing you. And yet, if you will entrust that situation to God, and if you will say, hey God, I want you to be the protagonist in this. I want this story to be about you. Then God comes alongside and walks with you and helps you through those situations. It could be spiritually you're feeling stalled or um, feeling overlooked. But see, when, when God is the main character in the story, even the hard things, even the difficult things begin to make sense, and God uses them for our good. And this is true for us as a church family, too. Not just, you know, as individuals, but as a church family. So for 17 years, we've been praying and planning and dreaming about a building. And God is bringing that to pass. And I drove past the the building site this morning. I hadn't seen it since, like, last weekend. And just in the last week, so much has been cleared away. It looks like a, a serious construction site now. And so it's good that we've planned and budgeted and prayed and come up with a plan. But more importantly, we need to recognize that this is not our story. I mean, God has been preparing us and positioning us for this, but if it's God's story, then if he says, hey, I want you guys to reach out to the community in a way that you've never done before, that's the storyline. That's what we've got to get on board with. If he says, I need you to sacrifice like you've never sacrificed before, I've just been preparing you for this, but, you know, I want to know if you'd be willing to step up. Then if we want to be in the story, that's what we need to do. We lost some people when we developed the plans for this building because it wasn't the kind of building that they were expecting. It wasn't really a building wrapped around like, oh, this is going to be so great for those of us who call Gateway our church home. It's going to be just what we want. What we decided was we need to make this a building that says to the community, you're welcome here. It's not about us that already come. It's about you that don't come. And so much of all of our plans for this are wrapped around the idea of how can we love and serve the people in this community? Because that's what God's story is about. It doesn't matter if it's Gateway Community Church. It doesn't matter if Ed's the pastor. It's not about him. It's not about us. It's about God. And so when John the Baptist Uh, says in John chapter 3, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's, That's the idea here. It's not about us. It's about him. And we need to seek more and more to put him at the center of the story. So I'm going to ask you to pray, and I want you to take a couple of minutes this morning, Nate. And I want to ask you just to spend some time listening for God's voice. Just you and God alone in your chair. See if God has anything to say to you about his story and about your part in it, about you making him the protagonist, making him more and yourself less.
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us for all the times that we have thought that the story was about us. Where we've been selfish and looked with limited perspective and in our relationships, in our work, in our ministry, we've been confused about who was at the center of the story. So I pray that in our lives this week, you would help us to put you in first place. If there are areas where we've been holding back or trying to do things our way, I pray that you would bring those to mind and that you would encourage us and give us hope as we lean in your direction and trust you and move you to the center of the story. And I pray for us as a church family that with every step in this new journey, you would help us to be focused on you and your story. Help us to allow you to increase. Help us to willingly want to decrease so that the story is all about you. So that others would come to know you as forgiver and king. For those that are struggling today, I pray that as they put you at the center of their life, you would comfort and pour hope into them. For those who are broken and need healing, I pray that you would bind them and that your grace would wash over them and give them hope. Help them to know that there is a fresh start they can have with you. And so we give you the honor and the glory this morning, and we want you to have first place in our life. We want you to be king. Amen.